Hello again and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my wonderful, beautiful, talented co-host, Teos AlphaStream Abadia. Hey, Teos. Woo! I feel like I should just do one of those really loud woos that my kids complain about when I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just walk around the house doing that most of the day. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, no one's around except the cat. Uh, so, so, Sean, I'm afraid we're just going to have to cancel the show because there wasn't much news. Oh, my gosh. Why yeah, do just... we even bother doing anything in a show after, like, these D&D celebration <laughs> events? Uh because it's just news, 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 news. 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 Oh, man, so much news. Yeah. So much of the news. So let's get right into the D&D celebration and the news that happened there. And I was a dutiful uh, employee working part of my weekend, uh, so I didn't see some of the time, and then a dutiful Sucka. husband, and so I missed the rest of the time. But you were there. You were taking notes diligently and you have a lot to talk about i was not a corporate stooge this weekend sean i first Uh, of all i played games let's just start with a simple thing that's that's, good there's no controversy to this whatsoever uh i i think uh i played both the introduction to witch light and the epic for witch light interesting thing is we don't actually know much about what the DD adventures league season will be like so it's not entirely clear how this fits into everything mm-hmm. but i can say that if you play the intro and you play the epic which were both super fun you definitely are it's all about hanging out in the um the witch light carnival that is in the new adventure so it, it's certainly like if you played that and then your DM was like, I'm going to run the carnival or, or the adventure, you'd be like, oh, okay, I've done a little bit of that. You'd yeah. have to say that because it, it, it really gives you a window. Yeah. Um, the intro is kind of fun. You make a shell of a character. Mm-hmm. The idea is this is young you. So whatever character you had in mind, you're making the little version. So I made Zippy a uh, Heron gun, uh, you know, the new rabbit folk. Right. Uh, and, and all I knew was... Uh, you know, I had, I had like two hit points and, and, and four silver pieces. And I had like one feature about myself, no class, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun. It was a super neat experience um, where it was a just heavy role playing and, and exploration interaction kind of things like that. Right. Uh, yeah. And the epic. And the, was, just the, the yeah. intro was two hours, correct? Two hours. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. And then the epic was four hours. And that was a kind of neat uh, exploration of the carnival, which had sort of essentially felt a lot like the adventure, both some kind of adjustments and ways to make it a narrow experience. Uh, there was some, there were some roving NPCs that came around. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy Demps gave me licorice damage as his NPC uh, defeated me with a rapier, a licorice rapier wielding uh, character, and I rolled very, very poorly. And uh, took all my hit points and licorice damage, but then he put licorice in my mouth and I got all my hit points back. So it was that kind of fun, whimsical adventure. Yeah, yeah. And I saw a lot of people saying, this is just what I need at this point, right? We've had we've had Ravenloft. We've had, yeah. you know, uh, the... Dark, dark, dark. The, the dark cold of Icewind Dale. And it's it's good to uh, it's good to have this. And it's it's odd for me because it feels like just like a month ago, that we were doing an intro and an epic for the Ravenloft Miss Hunters uh, series. So I I have to keep reminding myself that these are really two different campaigns. The the Miss Hunters 
is the alt campaign like the Oracle of War was, and then this is more of the Forgotten Realms campaign. Yeah. Uh, even though with all the rules changes, it does seem almost like a brand new thing. So, uh, yeah. so if you're you know if you're an Adventures League player, or even if you're not but are interested, uh, now's a good time to be coming on board because we've got this we've got the new rules that we'll talk about in a second. We've got this new campaign starting, or if you want to you stay in that sort of dark place uh the the mist hunters campaign yeah. is, is is really still just getting started yeah and um there haven't been super f- uh, you know full dates released yet but we know that there will be an october uh, game day what they call the virtual weekend mm-hmm. uh there will be one of those for october it, tentative you know you can pencil on your calendar october 15th to 17th but those are not confirmed um, and so if you watch the Yawning Portal or you follow the, the Baldwin Games or D&D Adventures League on Twitter, you will see that announcement come in. And you could probably play these because usually these kind of intros get run various points because uh, it's fun for a lot of people to try out. So I highly recommend both these experiences. They were great. And that was just the game section of things, Sean. Yep. Yep. I literally just penciled, penciled in D&D Virtual Weekend on my yeah. calendar. So thank That's you for telling me to do proper. that. Proper. Okay, so so what's some of the news outside of the gameplay? I know that we've been sort of following the DM's challenge, uh, and Andrew Bishkinski did did win. So congratulations, yeah. Andrew. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, he credited his Adventures League experience uh, in, in, in a Twitter post uh, today, uh, the day that we're recording. Um, and so I think that's, you know, kind of a, a neat feeling to see kind of people start still still having the effect that you and I had of mm-hmm. kind of coming up through, through those Adventures League or organized play ranks. That's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, but it was a tough competition. You know, he was talking about how he traveled a lot during this whole competition. So he was often composing things through hotel rooms, which brought back many memories for me yeah. of designing in hotel rooms as I traveled all over the place. Um, but it was it was a tight competition. And, and one thing he highlighted, which was cool, when he, when he credited the other competitors that you know made it to the end and even the ones from the very beginning a lot of people that were international and that's given that uh because english is a second language for andrew mm-hmm. um although it's his primary today um but a lot of the folks in this competition have a, a, either come from another country or, or, or have that background and and that was even with the limits that the competition had to have of only operating in certain countries due to all those legal restrictions. Right. So you can only imagine if we really open this further what it could be like. So it's kind of Yep. And now WizKids had some announcements, and I know that this is exciting for you specifically. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's always like, how do I not spend money? Because they're releasing a Warduke and Grimsword 7-inch action figures. It just feels like old school times. If folks know... Back when there was a D&D cartoon, there were all these action figures that were provided in the 80s. Yeah. And, uh, and, and my friends had all of them. I, I had none. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my friends had a lot of them, most of them. And they were super cool looking, and it just felt like you were the coolest fan if you had these. So if you missed out on it, you know, I, I can see that I will buy one War Duke uh, just as a way of, of, I don't know, checking off that box on my childhood that I missed, but they are $37 each. So, you know, (laughs) there is that there is, there is that $37 action figure figure, uh, actioning out there. Uh, and every time that they've run one of these D and D live D and D celebration events for the past few years, they've had an online component with puzzles. 
usually provided by Loan Shark Games. And they did that again this year. Yeah, this was really cool. And, and I spent a fair bit of my weekend on this, uh, which was you go to the map of the Witchlight Carnival and Lone Shark Games members, Chad Brown, who's a friend of ours, uh, Lisa Teague also, and many and, and some other staff members from Lone Shark Games had worked with Wizards to create this puzzle that spawned, spanned the carnival map. Uh, they had said that it would be gone today. It is still up on Monday of the recording. So I don't know if, you know, you can still do this when you hear the recording. Um, but if not, I did actually do a video walkthrough and put it on my Twitch channel and it'll be on my YouTube channel by the time you hear this walking through all the puzzles because they were quite devious. I mean, my, my brain felt like, I don't know, churned butter at the end of it. It was just like there, it wasn't even, it had transcended pain, Sean. <laughs> and I, I generally like puzzles, but I, you know, I'd reached that point where it was just, I only plotted along out of the feeling of necessity to say that I didn't quit. Understood. Yeah, I like puzzles. I'm not the best at them, but you are a brave, brave soul to actually record yourself doing these puzzles. Because well, I did it after I'd succeeded. Oh, so. I got you. <laughs> I went I back say, and did it. I, yeah. I was going to say because if I videoed myself doing puzzles. It would not be safe for work. Why? Oh, yeah. This would have been exciting yeah. footage of me slamming my head against various objects. No, yeah. I went back after I'd solved everything and I re did a walkthrough of it for, for folks. Nice. Um, so th the way it works is there were six locations on the map where you could do actual puzzles. And if you solve them and one was tied to each attribute, so you'd go to like the charisma puzzle uh, or the intelligence puzzle, which we all hated. Uh, and you would, at the end of it, put in a keyword which you had, was the solution to the puzzle. Right. And this was tied to a magic item. And you would get the PDF or uh, image file for the magic item, which is an event item. Mm -hmm. And the new AL rules clarify that these are things that you get to have as a player. Mm -hmm. And whenever you play, you can choose one of them to have for that character playing the game. Gotcha. Um, so they're kind of common, you know, minor magic items, fun things like that. And uh, if you did all six of these, you could then go to the seventh puzzle and you had to then go through that mm -hmm. to get the final prize and a printable crown that you could wear, which I did see some people on Twitter wearing, which was very nice. cool. Nice. Um, other locations on the map provided lore and other fun little games, uh, wallpapers, and then three preview PDFs uh, from Fizzbands, the upcoming Dragon Book. The Metallic Dragonborn race, the Drake Warden Ranger subclass, and Moonstone Dragons. And the first two are valid for AL play if you found them. So you yes. can immediately make yourself a Metallic Dragonborn who is a Drake Warden Ranger whenever they reach that level. All right. Cool. Uh, I know that AL not only ran uh, a, a description uh, from, from Amy Lindazora, uh, Maat Crook, and B. Zelda sort of describing AL and, and what it is and mm -hmm. then some of the changes that were coming to it. They also ran stream sessions that, that new players could, could watch. Is that correct? No, it, it was just that overview. So they did oh, okay. that. Yeah. It, and it was kind of neat that it was like sort of, what we, I don't know, it felt like, like a top billing thing to be on it. Like the very first thing that happened on all of these days right. was that AL session. And they talked through how to draw in new players and all this. And so, that was pretty neat. Uh, yeah. I like that. And then I think the rest of the time, you know, they were all busy with running the actual games. Oh, I'm sure. Yep. And what about the streams? There were many, many streams. I'm sure you couldn't have watched them all. 
But. Uh, I did not. They're you know, halfway through one of them. Uh, but uh, the cast members of Star Trek Discovery, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And apparently, like, Anthony Rapp's Weekend, he's one of the you know main cast members, and, and he's been on Drag and Talk and all that. So he was streaming D&D, you know, on one day. And then, like, the next, he's performing live at the Tony Awards. So, yeah. That seems, bad. Yeah, that, Good that job, seems, Wizards. Yeah, that seems a, like, a, like a good transition. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there was, you know, the musical we talked about that's on my, on my queue list to go back and catch and all of this, uh, a great interview on the first day with the lovely folks, Stacey Allen and Will Doyle, who helped write Witchlight. Um, uh, it's, it's a very, it's a great interview. You have to watch it. And if only to hear the various dogs and babies and, and you know, all yeah. interacting in the background, because yeah. Chris Perkins always has like Milo react to any other creature that makes a noise. So it was very funny, that, that is um, funny. but it's neat. There's, there's a nice insight there on the creative process. Cool. And we're going to be interviewing Stacy and will probably next week. So yeah. I have to catch up and uh, go catch that interview. Yeah. What else? Well, here's where we get into the little bit of controversy kind Uh-oh. of stuff. Controversy. You know, this is where, where the brains all start working overtime and the Twitters start start tweeting. Uh, so first was, this was really Sunday. I mean, I think, you know, it was all calm until Sunday when Sage Advice came up. And the first kind of thing that I thought was interesting here was uh, Jeremy Crawford, in amongst answering various questions that people had posed in Discord or Twitter, said, hey, you know, after seven years of this edition, we've sort of recognized that maybe spell lists are not the easiest thing to run at the table when they're on monsters. Ah, yeah. To which we all went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. And, uh, and he said that part of it, it was a very interesting way of explaining it. And, and I get it. I mean, like, you know, why admit culpability when you don't have to? But it was sort of like... DMs sometimes fail to run a monster as effectively as the monster was intended to run. It was sort of that kind of thing. Like, you know, in this is a cone of cold, which is how we base the CR. But if you don't know to use cone of cold, then the CR plays out lower. Yeah. I don't know that I fully agree with that being why some monsters are weak, but I get it. And so the point is, well, let's take that giant spell list and all those spell slots, and let's revise this. And we can actually see that in Wild Beyond the Witchlight, and I think even in some other book before that. Mm. Um, but they have now changed their approach to spell lists on monsters, where, and there's kind of several steps in this happens. One is that spell casting goes from being a feature block that's you know earlier in the adventure, up in that feature, early in the monster stat block, up mm-hmm. in that kind of you know feature yeah. always on section. Yeah. Uh, and it becomes an action mm-hmm. spell casting. And instead of having spell slots, it now just says things like Kellett casts one of the following spells using charisma as the spell casting ability, spell save DC 14 at will three choices, one per day, each four choices. Okay. And so there are far fewer spells and they're now with a frequency. Yep. Uh, then some monsters, but not all of the ones that are like this, will then also have actions that are spells. So Kellek, for example, in Witchlight, doesn't have Fireball down in that spellcasting section, but instead has what's called Fiery Explosion Recharge 46, 4 to 6. And this is basically a Fireball spell. Yeah. But it isn't. And so what immediately people started saying is, wait, can my players counterspell that? 
And it would have been awesome if during sage advice, Jeremy Crawford had clarified that, but he didn't. He simply talked about the overall approach. Um, so yeah, I think that's going to be really interesting to see whether that, how that gets clarified currently the way it is, it doesn't seem, even when it says something like spell attack, it doesn't, you know, Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily a spell. And so I don't know that any of these can be counterspelled or would trigger certain features that subclasses have and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack. We could have a whole show just discussing this. Uh, what, what I see, I haven't seen any discussion online, so I'm just throwing out the first thing I notice here is that under the spell casting, normally it says blank is a 14th level spellcaster. Um, because then you would need to know what level it is to know what spell slot yeah. it was cast in to know how powerful it is. Now, maybe none of the, none of the powers there uh, require to know the level. Uh, I th- right. Um, like mirror image. I'm trying to remember. Does that can you, you can have it for more you can upcast images. it for more images? So you would need to know. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to take the time to check that out. I'm just going to assume. Um, so you would need to know what level it was cast at. So that is a problem right there. I mean, you could yeah. Obviously... Well, and again, but there's no spell slots, right? So yeah, I think my guess is that if it was meant to be upcast, it would say mirror image cast at third level or something like that you know, once per day. Um, yeah. Cause you know, in current yeah. monsters, like warlock type monsters, it says these spells are cast in the fifth level slot or, you know, whatever, just so you know. So I, I like yeah. the idea of simplifying. Uh, you just have to make sure that you answer all those sort of game mechanical questions that yeah. the DM would need to know uh, to run it smooth, more smoothly. Otherwise they're still going to have to open the book. Right. Uh, to figure, to figure things out. Yes. And, and I, and I think that, that immediately, that was some of the conversation that took place is, you know, well, is this clear for a new DM? Right. Maybe, maybe not, you know, it's, a, it's another thing you have to read and, and you end up in that strange situation where nothing in a rule book tells you how to use this because anything in a rule book will actually tell you about the previous format. Um, so, you know, we'll see some confusion here until somebody can clear it up somewhere. Yep. Um, Another thing that came up was uh, Jeremy said monsters overall will now need to hit their CR in more ways than just one narrow path. So he explained Mm -hmm. that when they design a monster, you know, they have, as we've talked about before on the show, sort of a secret sauce that they go through that determines the CR. And that is a calculation. But now they're going to have several paths that must be hit. And he didn't get into what those paths look like, but just right. that there's more than one way the monster must qualify for the CR. And, and, and again, there was sort of interesting use of words here that kind of avoided saying some monsters are weak. Instead, it sort of said some monsters may be run by DMs in a way that results yeah. lower than their CR. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you could see that maybe they'll look at damage, which has been a subject that's been out there recently. And they may say... Hey, you have to hit the CR on damage too. Mm-hmm. And so even if, you know, I, I have a special invisibility or whatever, if I'm not hitting the damage, well, then this isn't that yeah. CR. Yep. I think that makes very good sense. And um, may have been something that we thought about when we were creating our monsters for the uh, <laughs> Grim Hollow monster grimoire. 
So, yeah. That came up on Twitter a lot where people said, you know, I've been using the uh, monsters from company X or Y yeah. because they're just better at my table, right? They perform better. So, so that's interesting to see the company that started it all kind of go back and say, well, we're going to yeah. find a... Yeah. That makes sense. The, the other thing that I saw here, you know, a lot of, there was a lot on the Eldritch Knight. So if, if you do that, you may want, and multi-class, you may want to look at that. And the Blade Singer, there was a lot around that. Um, but one clarification that I thought a lot of DMs might use is around the rabbit hop that the Herringon has. Um, the rabbit folk, it, it, it was a question as to whether it consumes movement. And they said, no, Jeremy said, it's a powerful feature, which is why it's limited how many times you can use it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not using up your movement. So it's in addition to any movement you may have. Yeah. Wow. That's all. That's a lot of news. And then, <laughs> and then came the big news. <laughs> oh, the big news. So yeah. the future of D and D seminar is always interesting. I mean, last year, I think the only bombshell was really the idea that there were going to be this return to three classic settings. Right. And I think we were all wondering when that was going to happen. And, and so it started along those lines where they, uh, Ray Winninger said uh, Ravenloft was the first of the three classic settings, um, which, you know, some people might go like, well, we'd already been to Ravenloft, but okay. You know, so that was the first. And there are two more that are coming out in 2022. And these are the ones that are the different formats than have ever been used before. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll have to see, you know, what that is. Uh, because that's, you know, but again, it's, it's sort of like, this was all kind of news from last year got repeated again. Right. Uh, and then some new news in 2023, we will get another classic setting. Mm -hmm. So if Ravenloft was the first, we still get three more tries at whatever, you know, insert your favorite classic setting here. You yeah, they have three to be more running chances. out. They have to be running out of classic settings at this oh, point. Oh God. Well, but, you know, you can get into Mistara and Dragonlance and, yeah. you know, Greyhog. And before you know it, you'll you'll camp to 10 uh, yeah, on all the classic settings. Dark Sun and Spelljammer yeah. and, you know. Yeah, that's true. Birthright. So, yeah, I, I, I think, I don't, you know, and then, well, and the other thing is wait for it because maybe you don't want your setting to come out yet. Um, what else? Uh, more adventure anthologies. They, Crawford, I think it was, said that there is clear indication that people like shorter adventures wrapped together, such as with Candlekeep Adventures. So mm -hmm. expect more of that type of thing. Uh, Saltmarsh is another example. Mm -hmm. Chris Perkins talked about the changes in the witch, in Witchlight regarding forms, such as the spellcaster angles, and there's going to be a blog and more to come that will examine those underpinnings. Mm -hmm. And then they noted that in 2024, we will reach 50 years of Dungeons & Dragons. True story. And Ray Winninger then went in and dropped the bomb. There will be a new version of D&D &D in 2024. Okay. Updating of the core books is what they said, yes? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they were... I thought all of the folks that were Wizards employees were very careful to say version. Uh, host Elsie... Ellie Osley Wood, I think that's her name, said the word edition at one point. But I don't know that, you know, I think they were deliberately sort of saying version and not edition. Right. And this, of course, speculation just blew up as we were wondering, well, is this a 6E? Is this 5.5? Yeah. And you and I could do a show, and maybe oh, yeah. even should, just on what's the difference between, you know, a 6E and a 5.5? And what can we learn from, say, Essentials or 3.5? Right. 3.5. 3, 3. 
Yeah, even the second edition rules, they yeah. put out revised books. Yeah, true. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's so that, it's that just interesting. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. There's so many angles to this. Uh, there are things like legal angles, right? Like maybe all of the deals they've done with all of their various partners are based on a particular edition. It's not hard to imagine that mm -hmm. there could be wording in, in legal agreements that says, you know, for the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. And so if there is another edition, would you need a new legal agreement, a new to negotiate a new thing? Yeah. Who knows? There could be so many things. And you and I have talked about Watsi and Hasbro and all of the goals they've set, very aggressive goals mm -hmm. that if you look at it, you know, unless you have a ton of video games that just bring in all the money, Mm -hmm. Well, where is the money coming from for all that growth? And there are only so many new books you can print. You know, how does it all happen? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, and again, we could do several shows on just this business <laughs> angle. Uh, and yeah, as somebody who works for a third-party publisher that does use the open gaming license to yeah. create products, this got my attention. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it gets everybody's attention. And I think, you know, most folks know you can you can... You can uh, you can do okay uh, as a third party, but you know, there's so much history we can draw upon. I mean, th three to three point five was a disaster for the OGL companies, mm -hmm. uh, the companies, the third party providers that were using the OGL. That was a disastrous period, and you know, again, maybe we should chat about it. Uh, listeners, let us know what interests you. Uh, I thought it was very kind. Uh, Joe Rasso uh, in chat said, "I can't wait," and, and this is in the D and D stream chat during the session said, I can't wait to hear what mastering dungeons says about this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was very kind. Thank you, I, I can't wait to, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, it, this was just such a huge, uh, on one hand, not a surprise because we've seen like these surveys saying, what do you think of the halfling? And then you're like, yeah. why are you asking me about these old, you know, races, unless yeah. you're going to change them. So on one hand, like it's all, all the indications are there, but on the other hand, it's still surprising to hear the words spoken out loud. Yeah. Um, I recall being at a convention when a staff member for wizards said to me, you know, in a hallway, five E is the, you know, and, and back then they didn't use the term five E, right? So it was this edition is the last edition there will ever be of Dungeons and Dragons. We don't need another. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, really? <laughs> I'll talk to you later about that. Yeah. The players because, might not need another, but uh -huh. the company does. Well, and players too, right? I mean, there are things yeah. about 5e that we all start to see, you know, in yeah. new ways and we want to change. And so there's so many reasons to, to do this. Um, and, and here we are now. And, and, you know, if 5e ends in 2024, that's actually 10 years. Mm-hmm. Because it came out in 2014, which will be a similar age to the run that Advanced Dungeons and Dragons had. True. 3E ran eight years, but that included a 3.5. Yeah. 4E ran six years. Yeah, and that so included it, it, an Essentials release. Yeah, including an Essentials release. So yeah. you know, it, it's it's not you know so unbelievable to see this happen now, and, and oh, it's fascinating. It is. <laughs> it is good stuff. And yeah, we, we'll talk about it more as more information trickles out because right yeah. now we, we could speculate forever. And okay. unfortunately, part of my job is speculating on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I can, and I, I can, can't talk about it. Yeah. So. I can say things you can't and all that. I mean, you know, there, there were two pieces that I think it was Ray that said this something about 
sort of new ways for fans to contribute to the shape of D&D and something about new experiences in the digital arena. I, those are not exact words, but essentially it, it caused people to think like, well, are you talking about the virtual tabletops? Are you talking about content provision? Because you have partners for that. So what's going on there? And are you talking about contributing as in the DMs guild? Is there going to be a new version of the DMs guild? Is this, you know, so there's just so much that is, enormous to the ecosystem of the hobby yeah. uh, that we have no idea whether it'll be impacted or not. And and we yeah. have a whole two years worth of figuring it out. Yeah. So, you know, not more than two. So there was like our first bit of news and here we are 40 minutes or so into, into the podcast. Ah, yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll be coming back to all of this at some point uh, over yeah. the next months and years. Uh, but let's talk about a bit more news, like uh, One Bookshelf launching its Dungeon Craft Spotlight program. So, yeah, yeah this is an interesting program. If if you remember the D&D Adepts, the Guild Adepts, uh, which we haven't heard much from recently, uh, this program seems similar, but being led directly by One Bookshelf, the company behind the DMs Guild, rather than being run by Wizards of the Coast. So uh, Domains of Delight was a Wizards of the Coast release written by Adam Lee that provided rules for creating Domains of Delight, which are kind of like the Domains of Dread of Ravenloft, but with Arch Fay ruling them instead of the, uh, you know, the masters of the Ravenloft domains. So with that out, product out, you can create your own domains. So what we have are eight adventures from some of the best-selling DM Guild designers showcasing their own domains of delight. So, uh, as with other Dungeon Craft adventures, these will be legal for the Adventurers League. Uh, we were told at one point that the Dungeon Craft program will get a relaunch with its own special set of rules. Uh, the authors of these spotlight dungeon craft adventures include a bunch of names that we've heard and probably mentioned on the show before uh mm -hmm. justice Armin, bianca bickford paul gabat emily Harmon, gabe hicks anthony joyce kat krueger jackie lung uh and i think all eight are out or maybe seven of yeah, the eight are out I right now i think all eight are out yeah and so by the time this show drops they will definitely all be out uh, so they're on the DMs Guild. They've got their own special banner, so you can see them. All the covers are designed similarly, so you can mm -hmm. tell they all go together. And they're all for uh, levels one to four. So yeah. they're great to pick up and play with some new players. Yeah, and if you don't know about the Dungeon Craft program, this is uh, sort of replaces uh, the CCC program that used to be driven by conventions that would create content. Mm -hmm. um, this is a program that allows anybody to create Adventures League content uh, under this Dungeon Craft name. And so look forward to those new rules because th that's a way that you can be noticed as a creator yep. uh, by creating these as well and give you good experience for writing. Sure. Uh, speaking of the Adventures League, they have released newly revised rules. So when, when last we spoke of the Adventures <laughs> League, they had put out some rather complicated rules about what characters could play what adventures, depending on what sort of uh, arm of the Adventures League that they were in. And they had, we had the Masters series, and we had Dream of the Red Wizard, and 
you know, we had alt campaigns and we had, I, I, I've lost track of the different names that they had. For <laughs> yeah. Them. So now the rules that they've just released are very simple uh, compared to what we've seen in the past. Um, they set up a singular rule set and they are effective immediately for all players and DMs. And so uh, th- they're basically three pages uh, and just lay it out for you know, how to create a character. What can you play? How do you level? How is magic handled? And uh, it's pretty concise, relies on the, the books themselves rather than, you know, any Adventures League specific rules to to go through it. And I think most people that I've talked to or seen are happy with it. Yeah, it's really, I used these to create, you know, the character for the epic that I played and it was really very simple. It's it's basically make a and d character and, and a few things like, well, you know, use the standard array and, and, you know, things like that that are just super simple and, and a table that lists what options you can draw from, which is bigger than it has been in the past. So you get a lot of freedom in creating your character. Mm-hmm. Um so, so yeah, it's really simple. It covers everything other than Oracle of War and Ravenloft Mist Hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, it has some very simple things of, you know, how you use magic items and how you get them. Um, and, yeah, I, I liked it. It's way better than, you know, I think in the past when we'd see some of these rules, it got to the point where we'd say, you know, a lot of folks just want to play D&D. Like, yeah. they don't want to have all these constraints of, Oh, sorry, you played an Icewind Dale adventure. Now you can't play this other adventure. And so there's a lot, I think better clarity and and flexibility to people can just bring a character. If you use point by it's legal, (laughs) you used fixed hit points, you know, that's it. And you just show up and play whatever you want to play at the con. Yeah. Without going too far down the Harrigan hole, uh, you know, the, the problem, not problem, the challenge of organized play administration is you want it to be as simple as possible for people to get into while still maintaining a semblance of order. You don't yeah. want new players coming in and having to deal with a first level character from an experienced player that has the wand of Orcus. And, <laughs> and I, I say that jokingly, but you would get to the point where things like that have and could happen. Mm-hmm. So it's always this sort of balance between keeping it simple so people can come in and play easily while also keeping order, keeping everything under control, keeping right. the experience fun for as many people as possible as well. And so this is this is pushing in that super easy, super uh, you know, super straightforward, not very complicated. Now we'll see how it plays. Mm-hmm. Um We'll see if if the ease of entry and lack of more specific rules uh, is able to maintain control enough and we we don't get the players saying, oh, I went to some AL event and it was horrible because blank. Right. Uh, So, yeah, we'll we'll uh, hope for the best and prepare for reality. Yeah. But I mean, again, this looks good. There are times when you look at rules and you immediately think to yourself, wow, this could be rough. And, uh, you know, I think everybody's been very happy to see the the approach taken here. As you said, it always needs refinement. It always needs addressing. Um, But it it seems to, you know, catch the major pit traps around Mm -hmm. some of the power level aspects like magic items and gold acquisition and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. 
That, that that's the big thing. So if you can limit that, uh, you can generally uh, put together a pretty good program. DM David, he's at it again. Uh, this time a short but important, I think, blog post on rethinking potions as a bonus action. So uh, he mentioned that a lot of house rules include this idea that you can drink a potion as a bonus action because using an action is a pretty high cost for uh, you know, for a player to spend their their action, their big move of their turn, which can then the round could last for five minutes. So all you did in that five minute round is drink a potion. Uh, however, it's also can be a very very powerful thing to be able to heal yourself and also do something else. Uh, or drink a potion that gives you a very specific resistance to fire damage when you're fighting the fire giant or the red dragon. Uh, so giving giving a player in that action economy a, a free resistance to fire against the fire creature is a very powerful thing. Uh, so I think what he comes down on, maybe this is what you came down on, was make the healing potion drinking a, uh, a regular action, but give some of the other bonus, uh, bonus action yeah. abilities for other potions. That's how I feel. Like I in fourth edition, I played a null shaman and just as a sort of, let's see what happens. I, it was all about, uh, consumables. And I worked with my DM to basically turn all of my coin and, and normal magic into consumables. Like I would trade away the magic I got and all that. And I would try to give people all of the various 4E consumables. There were like things to like file your weapon and, you know, you'd oh, yeah. attach it to a weapon and all this kind of consumable stuff. And the re reality was players would never use it. Even when I was giving it to them and saying, use it now. Oh yeah. Okay. Cause, cause it's just hard. And, and we all know if we've played organized play, we have buckets of characters who retired with who knows how many potions of this and scrolls of that because you're always afraid to use it because it might not be optimal. And so I kind of feel like I could eat, honestly live with no action for most potions other than healing. Yeah. Just because players don't need the survivability of healing. So I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. wary to give those uh, a reduced action, but for everything else, I just, I'd, I'd love to see more use of it. I'd, I'd actually, yeah. you know, take that fire assistance potion because otherwise, you know, you fight the dragon or the salamanders or whatever, and you don't even use it. <laughs> it's like, why did I give it to you? Yeah, yeah, I I understand that rationale. My counter would be our, our DMs and players saying, boy, this game is too hard and we really need this to survive this game. Or is it the opposite? Oh, this game is too easy and it's very hard to challenge characters. Um, and, you know, giving them even more power, will that might feel good, but does it actually help the game? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good okay. question. Um, I do think a lot of players talk, or a lot of DMs talk about how they wish their games were uh, a little tougher and that they knew how to challenge players. But I think at the same time, it's sort of strange to award consumables and not have them get used, right? And, and yeah, I agree. I think that's the it's it's hard because you know if you think of it at a combat, and DM David talks about this, you know, a combat lasts three to five rounds. 
So when in that space are we using the potion? Like, let's say round one, you're just figuring things out. So you probably like attack and then you realize, oh, you know, I might want to cross the lava to get to the boss. Well, I could spend a, my second round just drinking that potion so that on the third round, somebody else will probably have gotten to the boss by then. Right. So I'll just attack. Yeah, it's, it's true. <laughs> it's true. And, and so, you know, rather than saying we should just allow that as a bonus action, we should really be going back and saying, how do we want our combats to work and mm-hmm. what larger scale changes need to be made to, to make things work the way we want them to work. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's, I, I, I understand the rationale totally of, mm-hmm. we have these things, we want to use them. Let's find a way to use them. Yeah. It's so. an interesting question. Just add one more ancient red dragon to every combat, and I think <laughs> everything will be fine. Only yeah. at, only at fifth level and higher, though. And for the Gygax effect, what you do is, you know, the the dragon has in its horde the red dragon slaying sword and the potion of fire resistance, right? That's the way it has to work. Exactly. You, you exactly. only get it at the end when you don't yep. need it. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> we have two new licenses coming out Uh for different role-playing games. The first is the Blade Runner role-playing game license, which was secured by Free League, uh, the Swedish RPG company that has received praise for several games like Alien and Tales from the Loop and The One Ring and many, many, many more. Um, the role-playing, the Blade Runner role-playing game will launch in 2022, uh, partnering with Genuine, which has worked on Altered Carbon, RPG, the Dragon Prince RPG, and other licensed board games. Uh, the second license is Stargate RPG. Um, Wyvern Games is going to be publishing this Stargate SG-1 role-playing game in October after a $425,000 Kickstarter. Yeah, one interesting angle of this is that it's the, the RPG is set after Season 6 of the show, but apparently a new television series is in development. Um, there was a Stargate RPG back in 2003. There were even crossovers because AEG owned the game Spycraft. Uh, there were Spycraft games where it touched into the Stargate universe. Nice. And then once the game, the Spycraft RPG left, and they couldn't do that anymore. But So you know, it's interesting to see that come back. It's even going to have an organized play campaign called Starge- Stargate Phoenix, a living RPG series where players can switch tables throughout the season. Their successes and failures can impact the story. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I always love to hear that because it's very hard to do and and maintain. So, we'll, yeah, I'll be keeping an eye on that. Whew. Well, that was just some of the news this week, but we really, <laughs> uh, really wanted to get into our main topic today, which is the continuation of our Starting Strong series, where we look at the introductions and first level uh, play for the various hardcover uh, adventures. And we've gone through several, and now we are up to Waterdeep Dragon Heist. So I don't know if it was just because I was in a good mood while I was reading and writing this, but I really liked the introduction to this to this adventure. I liked what it did, and I liked how it was formatted and laid out and presented uh, in the book. I like it too, though I think there is a point when you go, oh, wait, there's more. Um, mm-hmm. what, what's what's interesting, you know, we've sometimes advocated simplicity, and there are times when you don't want simplicity. And I think a city 
adventure is actually a great time to not have simplicity because cities are inherently chaotic, especially, you know, big cities like Waterdeep. It's like your New York City kind of thing. And so you want this to be complicated. Like you want factions and different entities and guilds and yeah. right. Yep. And part of the reason why the, the, the intro to this adventure needed to be clear and concise is because the adventure itself is very much not clear and concise. Uh, the adventure itself, when you get past that introduction, there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, you have an adventure where there could be four different main villains. And depending on the season that you choose, it could play very differently from one run to the next. So yeah. to get and into it, you, you want it to be clear. Right. And, and in those moving parts, it, it sort of happens that you reuse sections of the adventure, which is a kind of neat way. In one way, you're wasting less because you get to you know use this chase scene, but the chase scene is X if it's this season or Y if it's that other one. Yeah. So there's a little bit of, of work for the, the DM to kind of wrap their head around. Um, and, and even some of these seasonal aspects are entirely optional, like the villain pieces, you could have them or not have them. So there's a lot that as you're reading, it doesn't quite make sense yet. But those things tend to all be towards the end of the adventure, right? Which is what's good. Right. So it lets you get started. And, and the beginning especially, I think, is a very strong uh, intro where it, it, it has a sort of very nice beat to it where it says, here's what's going to happen. Here's the mm -hmm. box text. Yep. Here's how to run this section. Or here's how to run this section. Here's the box text. Go. And, and that's nice right it's just yeah. yeah 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 it's it is very linear uh, of all the although the the introduction is very linear although there are places where you as the dm could could add some some flourishes here and there but uh it it does a great job like the the, the introduction is not short but it's not long and the information given is very concise and it says, you know, here's the story overview. Hey, you're going to have to choose a villain. Here are the villains, and here's their backgrounds. Oh, you're also going to have to choose a season. Here are the seasons, and here's how that mm -hmm. affects things. Um, oh, by the way, this takes place in Waterdeep. So there's a few things you're going to want to need. You're going to want to know about Waterdeep. Boom. Yeah. Uh, and the factions. And, and yeah. that's my only thing is I feel like it's it's a, a fair bit. There's also. Um, character creation section, which I would have loved to have had that in an appendix. Like just look for things to pull out of that front section. And if these are things that are going to hand the players, then, you know, let's have it in yeah. an appendix rather than here. But yeah, that's it's just, true. I, my worry is always, you know, I'm a new DM. I pick this up and I get excited and then I'm reading more and more. And yeah. it'd be nice if I could read a little and get into it and I, then maybe read some more, you know? I, no, I, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. I just, when I was reading it, my attention span, it gets shorter and shorter the older I get. And it's pretty short to start with. So when I get to a part where I'm reading and I'm like, I'm on sets, you know, the fifth paragraph already. And I don't think I care about what's being said here or right. I'm not been told. I feel like this does give a lot of information, but it gives it in a way that's concise and important enough that I can see its connection to what's going on. Like with, with yes. the factions, with the factions in an, in another book, when you go on and on about the factions, 
I don't care. It, yeah. You know, especially if it's, well, this faction is the main bad guy, but you really don't need to know about them because there's no connection other than the fact that the main bad guy is in that faction. The factions play such an important role here. I feel like you needed that information up front, mm-hmm. but it's just concise enough that I'm like, okay, couple of paragraphs, boom, I get it, move on. And it helps clarify what will be coming in the actual encounters of the adventure. So, yeah, I, I think yeah. it's as well, you know, given that it's 20 pages of introduction, mm-hmm. it is a superb 20 pages. Like it, it is, I agree with you that this is one of the better jobs at an introduction, even though it's high volume, because it is written in such a way as to make it useful and interesting. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So then we get into the actual adventure, uh, chapter one called a friend in need. Uh, the very first thing is where to start. And it, I think it's maybe four or five lines. That's it. Just like, here's how you start. Love that format. Uh, it gives us a simple overview of, as Teo said, here's what's going to happen. Here's your box text. It happens. Here's what happens next. There's box text. Here's what happens. Here's what happens next. Yeah. And and that, that repeated cadence of, you know, description, then explanation, then description, then explanation, just makes it super simple to run. Uh, the characters start in the Yawning Portal, which is an iconic location in both the Waterdeep and the Forgotten Realms. So a bar fight breaks out, um, and it's not just a random bar fight, which I loved, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a bar fight between these two factions, the Zentarum and the Xanathar Guild, that is key to the entire adventure, right? And it's repeated throughout the adventure, right? So, and you may not notice it yet, but it'll, yeah, but it's there. Yeah. Uh, and then right as that is happening, a troll climbs up out of Undermountain, uh, being attacked by Sturges. So now you've got this bar fight that may or may not be over, plus a troll, plus Sturges. And Undermountain will be the next book that immediately follows this. So mm-hmm. it's good to get that sort of little hint that yeah. something more will be happening down there. That's a good point. I haven't thought of that. Yeah, that's um, great. It's like from the very beginning, you're calling to the next book. That's Yeah, that's brilliant. And then assuming that the characters do something noteworthy during this whole fracas, uh, Volo an iconic Forgotten Realms NPC will call on them to do a task for him. Uh, now, just as the DM, the only caveat I have here is characters may not be able to do much at level one, especially against a troll, even though the troll has you know, very few hit points. Um, so, you, may, you know, if the characters are out there rolling ones like I always do, and they're not doing anything noteworthy and maybe taking damage, um, you may need to give Volo another reason to call on them other than, Hey, you did a great job in that fight. Maybe it was, well, you didn't do a great job in that fight, but I like your your heart. So, yeah. uh, and Volo could be thinking, well, I can get these guys cheap because they're not that. Good. Yeah, there was recently a thread on Twitter about why does Volo give characters this property, and it's a funny analysis of sort of water deep tax law. Yeah. And how he stands <laughs> to be finally billed for all of these taxes, so th- th- he dumps it. But anyway, but yeah, yeah. I, I, what I like about this is that um, a number of things. But one of the things I like about this is that uh, Durnan, the the proprietor of the Yawning Portal, will face off against the troll, which has the 
I, it can't, and normally this would overshadow the characters, right? Where you're not really doing the important fight. And he tasks you with taking out the Sturges, but also asks you to do things like douse the troll with flammable oil mm-hmm. so that when it's down, then it can be doused. And so that even if it ends up being really Durnan that's fighting this thing, uh, they play a vital role. And, and it speaks to you, hey, your new starting adventures, that's okay. And so I thought it was all really, you know, pretty well done. And it's a fun sort of exciting beginning and, and an interesting way to introduce NPC. You know, you're starting in a bar, but it's a it's an yeah. interesting bar and an interesting situation. Yep, that's true. And so Volo says, hey, uh, I've got a few coin. If you would do me a favor, a friend of mine, I'm afraid he's in trouble. Haven't seen him. I was out drinking with him a couple of days ago. Could you could you find him for me? Make sure he's okay. And uh, and then so you, the characters go off. And I love this paragraph. I, I just have to read this paragraph. Um, it's just one one sentence or one paragraph, but it it tells you everything that's going to happen, and it gives you the name of the section that you're going to be running, uh, almost in a narrative way. So it says, "En route to the tavern." Quote: "Blood in the streets," which is the name of that section is a chance for the characters to see the city watch in action. If the characters decide to look around, quote, searching the dock ward gives them a feel for their surroundings. Uh, and they might discover a strange place, quote, old Zablob shop that warrants further exploration. Once they arrive at the destination, quote, the skewer dragon is an opportunity for the characters to get information from the patrons, which leads them to, quote, candle lane where their quest continues so in just one i think it's two long sentences one two three four you've given the six uh small encounters that are going to make up this section and exactly what order they're in why they're important what the characters are going to learn just super important especially for new dms to see that play out because it's almost like a map for the dm to follow and i love that yeah, that's excellent. And and these these scenes do a good job of communicating the feel of a large, growing, big, live city um, while being manageable to run. We can say that this is linear, but the way it plays out, like when I played this uh, back when I was playtesting it, which was pretty much the same as what you see now, mm-hmm. I remember thinking like going into the shop, like, is this are there other shops we should go to? Is this the shop? You know, it wasn't clear how linear it was because it felt bigger than it was. But that's because all the clues point you smartly into the right direction so that you do, you know, these things. Right. Um, and so it feels like a big open scene in a bigger city while being all easy to manage for the DM. And yep. I love that. Yep. So, and then if the characters follow the clues, which are very easy to find, uh, they end up at a warehouse that is owned by the Zentarum, Zentarum. but was overrun by the Xanathar Guild. Um, and so that's where the friend of Volo is kidnapped from, or taken to originally, and then kit- re-kidnapped <laughs> by uh, the Xanathar Guild. Yeah, so, and you go to the sewers to follow them. Right. So it's, and there are various ways that you can can handle things. But it's all easy to follow for the DM and written in a concise way that is is just a pleasure to run and easy to run. 
Yeah, and it gives you a sort of Gangs of New York feeling and introduces you into this concept of these warring factions. But then you kind of start realizing that there's this larger, like, why was this person kidnapped? Why was there this mix-up between two NPCs? You know, who is this the son of? And that all starts to get this larger plot going that will take some time to unravel. But it gives, I think the way it doles out, the pace at which it doles out these clues is really quite good, too. So then we that, get a really fascinating oh, chapter two, right? Yeah, I, I didn't do much with chapter two uh, here, but you can please yeah, give, just, give your impressions. It's a it's a fascinating decision uh, to have done this design wise. So you know, after all this exploration, we're talking about the characters are second level, and Volo grants the characters the deed to Troll Skull Troll Skull Manor, mm-hmm. and then this chapter, I think is hard for DMs to, to run well. Like this is a place where I, I love what's happening. I think that it could have been in a different format to make it easier for DMs to run. Cause essentially what happens is that the players receive, the characters receive this deed. So now they have a home base uh, and they want to do things with it, which they can, uh, but they're also being talked to by factions who are kind of reaching out to them and, and giving them missions. And it's a little unclear to what extent, what the ramifications of it will be if a DM says, yeah, join the Zentarim or join the Xanathars or the Emerald Enclave or any other group. Um, and, and exactly what they should be doing with their downtime, which it encourages the use of. And, and when I playtested this, it was the first time I'd used the downtime rules. Right. Uh, so we found that all very fascinating to break out the player's handbook and the DMG and find that the rules were quite confusing. And, <laughs> and then suddenly we were doing, you know, playing cards and gambling and, and uh, fighting in, in pits and stuff like that. Yeah. But we had a blast with it. Yep. And as the DM warmed up to it, this was actually, you know, we really enjoyed this part of the play. But, but it's not, um, yeah. you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's a navigated experience. It's, it's like, it yeah. almost feels like, recipe you're not a recipe in order it's it's the parts you're given all these parts um but not the pacing or the thought process and which is a shame because i think this can really be a fun fun experience part but we don't quite get that yeah yeah it it definitely i i since i was only focusing on the intro yeah yeah yeah. i i the the first parts you know with the warehouse and then going into the sewers and rescuing the person yeah the what my thought on that was that's probably two or three sessions, you know, two or three, four hour sessions to get to that point. Mm-hmm. So at this point, the DM has now seen new DMs have now seen how using this very nice recipe uh, that the book sets forth, you know, how to run yeah. this. Now we're to the point where the, the DM needs to sort of make up some stuff on their own or figure out. And and you're right. It could have done a better job of saying, while not being linear, at least here is a potential path that you could take. And if you want to deviate from that path, great. But yeah. you know, here's what we suggest. Yeah, and, and I think part of it is the chapter sort of begins with like, here are the parts of the alley where it's based, and it's like, whoa, whoa back up. Yep. Tell me what to do. <laughs> you know? yeah. And and yeah. and it's a shame because chapter one does that really well, and then chapter two just sort of. Here are all these ingredients, uh, you yep. know, do some stuff. And when you're done, get to chapter three. And I've heard some DMs are just like, well, I'm just skipping chapter two. Yep. 
And, and that's a shame because then this is really an opportunity to have a really different experience and also to cement this idea of a home base and how it can play out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but at the end of that troll skull alley chapter, you were then third level and, and, you know, mm -hmm. we're firmly out of the intro world and into the heart yep. of the adventure. Exactly. All right. So that was Waterdeep Dragon Heist. And let's look at the next hardcover that came out from Wizards, Acquisitions Incorporated. Mm, now, here's you and I a, know a thing about it. Here's a disclaimer. Uh, Teos <laughs> and I basically wrote that book or, you know, a good portion of it. So this will be a little yeah. awkward discussion as we, you know, try to try to look at it objectively. And I, I will do my best to uh, to look at it objectively rather than saying this is the greatest thing that has ever been written This is the in most the English language adventure in the history of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the finest. Ex no, okay. Well, underrated, it just as a aside, it drives me around the bend when, you know, I, I hear someone say, oh, yeah, the Acquisitions Incorporated book, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, and you'll get six responses. Oh, that's not really a real D&D book, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it's just a, it's a vanity thing. It, you know, it, no, it's, it, it's a real D&D book. It went through the same process, <laughs> perhaps even more so than any D&D book goes through. Uh, it was published by Wizards of the Coast. It, <laughs> it has its place in this discussion. So, yeah. uh, you know, even if you don't like Acquisitions Incorporated as, as a, an IP, as, as a you know, stream, as a D and D game, it has a lot to offer. Yeah, and, and I'll leave it at that. So let's look at it in terms of what we've been talking about uh, as an intro, as as the intro section of the adventure. Uh, the first thing to talk about is that the audience for this book is different than a typical D and D source book or adventure. Uh, so, with that in mind, right there, there is a large fandom for Acquisitions Incorporated that don't necessarily play D&D, but they like the story that is being told for it. Um, so when the book was being designed, that had and to be just, taken Sean, into account. I, just to pause and, and, and spell it out, you know, this is fans of a live stream. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, folks who like humor. Mm -hmm. And this is folks who like specifically humor around the idea of running a business in D and D right. So, so we're right. speaking to all those different pieces, which necessarily makes it different. And so mm -hmm. you have to start with, you know, in this adventure, we start with that kind of overview, right. right. Of what that means. Right. So, you know, a good portion of the book, as Teo said, is what is acquisitions incorporated? How do you run an adventure set in this sort of corporate spoof world while still being in the forgotten realms? Um, so all of that was handled at the front of the book. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the adventure that was specifically meant to show DMs and players how to use the stuff that came before. Um, yep. So the, the adventure begins with a case of mistaken identity. Um, the characters are mistaken as a powerful group of adventurers who are asked by Omendron to go look into a very simple problem that the real Acquisitions Incorporated people don't have time to deal with. But since these characters are so powerful, Omendron, or Omendron thinks they're powerful, Omendron is sure that they can handle it. Uh, 
So that that sets the scene. Then the characters travel through the city of Waterdeep to the location of a cave-in where an earthquake has taken place and opened up access to some underground areas. Um, my main problem with what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you did, you, you know, and, and we should say, you know, collaboratively, you and Scott Fitzgerald, Gray and I, yeah. Uh, with input from the Penny Arcade team, sat down and worked through what the plot of the adventure was. Yeah. And then we divided up what to write. And you wrote the first three episodes, and then yeah. I wrote the last three. There are six yeah. episodes. Each episode matches a level. Yep. And, and Scott had you know, a great deal of input yeah. as well. So when, when I say I wrote it, I'm, I'm saying... The parts that I didn't like are what the parts I worked on. Yeah, um, you had, well, you had to sit down and, and, and plunk out those words based on the plan right. and add to and, it. And, and, and the plan was to take it from levels one to six. So, And we had a certain word count or page count to get through. And so you know, I wrote a nice little first-level dungeon sort of thing. And as I, you know, as I was playtesting it, and I, then when the book was published, as I was running it, I was like, this is too long for first level. I really wish I had done a very short thing, maybe even in the Acquisition Incorporated home office. Two encounters. Uh, as they're walking through, some corporate espionage is happening, and they notice it. And so they have to do like a little combat, maybe a little exploration, deal with, deal with some crazy bomb about to go off or you know, <laughs> something. Uh, just just to get them to second level so this sort of longer dungeon crawl wasn't done at first level mm. uh, and t- hey if you're running it do that right get them to second level quickly then let them do this sort of longer dungeon crawl uh, I had don't have too many issues with the content of the dungeon crawl it's just more of a sense that first level is hard it's all. It's always hard to look back on what we write. I, you know, I ran this as well, uh, and and the group I ran it for loved it. Uh, they really had fun with this dungeon and the the quirky pieces that you put in there. In, in you know, related to this subject of an introduction, um, I think some things that we do well here. The introduction is like two pages, yeah. and it really is an overview of the story. And it's a little bit on kind of the tone and character and, 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 and some interesting things like NPCs. And I think that's something that, you know, when, when we wish that more people would, would uh, people let, when we wish that people who think, oh, Ack Inc., that's not my thing, would put that aside and pick up this book. One of the things that I think it's done really well in this is NPCs are super useful this predates all of the, you know, orc discussion and all that stuff. Like we have constant encounters with N- NPCs who are, whether they're in battle or not, are given roles and personalities and ways that they can become part of your team if you want it to be that way. Yeah. Uh, because we were, you know, focused on this idea of you creating an organization. So you're looking for employees all the time mm-hmm. and all the NPCs are given interesting quirks. And so th- there's a piece on that here, but it's a very short piece that walks you through that. Yep. Um, just, just and to, so I, I think just to elaborate on that, yeah. I when I ran this for my home group, you know, every NPC that they ended up meeting, they either tried to hire, or you know, or saw them as a competitor and got rid of them. When we finished, <laughs> when we got to level six, we we finished the event. I'm like, I can't DM anymore. I'm too busy. What are we going to do next? They wanted to play the NPCs that we'd hired. 
<laughs> in an adventure starting at first level wow, working great. for the you know working for their acquisitions incorporated franchise that's yeah. how much the npcs resonated with right with, with them as yeah. players yeah and and so so that's something that you know we spoke to an in intro and i think that works well that stands the test of time is sort of like yeah that was worth that little piece to give that guidance to the dm of making the most out of the npcs to prepare them for what appears in these various encounters and, and how you can have that happen um so we really get into the the action immediately and, and in episode one as you talked about this whole going to the dock ward of Waterdeep and into this fissure to explore it it's all pretty linear and I think most of the adventure, as you look through all these different episodes, it's linear, but sort of like we mentioned with Waterdeep, it, it, it has the larger feeling. So you're going to Fandalen, and on the way there, you run into various encounters that really have the ability for you to spend quite some time there if you want to, or go back to them. So like you meet lizard folk that you can deal with. And you may later become business partners with them. Like there are some opportunities there and there's a, there are a lot of kind of, um, it's written in a way that the, the DM can easily add to that and, and expand upon it. Or you meet somebody in that first dungeon that you, in fact, there are two NPCs you probably will meet and befriend in some way. And, and we certainly, the, the, when I ran it, the, the players, and this was a bunch of middle school kids, they latched onto the two NPCs that you find in that dungeon and became fast friends with them forever. And they accompanied them and would, would appear throughout the campaign. So there is that kind of, of larger feeling to it, even though it's it's linear, which means it's pretty easy to run, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing in Luskin. My, the first chapter I wrote was where they go to Luskin for level four. Yep. And there's that kind of, you know, set encounters that happen probably in a certain order, but you can do so much off of those. And that was, I right. think is a good way to do things. Yep. Easy I to think, run for DMs. I think the ratio of running what was in the book and running something that where the characters wanted to do something else was probably about 66%. For every two <laughs> sessions that I ran something out of the book, there was a session thrown in where, oh, we want to open this mine so let's go. And I'm like, okay. I could have just yeah. said, you know, make a couple of rolls. You've opened the mine despite these problems and you'll start making money in you know, a month. No, there, there were threats in the mine that they had to clear out. And it was, you know, just fun to, to make those up as we went based on the, the uh, wishes of the players. Yeah. And the other thing that's worth noting about the, the approach of this adventure uh, which is fairly unique, is this episodic nature. Each episode is a level that ends with downtime and suggestions. And what that kind of means is that the players may unravel something, like they gain an artifact that's been damaged. They don't know much about it. Mm -hmm. And you're given suggestions for what you could do with downtime to learn some additional clues. Mm -hmm. Sometimes downtime is even necessary. Like you can't start the next episode until, until you pick up some clues through downtime. Also, because you're running a, a business, there is a, an activity, a downtime activity you must run to see how your business fared, yep. which necessitates the players thinking through, are, what are each of us going to do? Like maybe one of us wants to train the goblin that we rescued from the first mission. And another one, you know, thinks, well, I wanted to do this thing, but I also feel like I should help out the business to make sure we make money. So why don't I run one of these downtime activities that bolsters the cash inflow if I succeed and so on? Yeah, and same thing with the players that I that I ran this for. You know, they 
much more strategy was used in figuring out who was going to do what downtime to make sure they covered all their bases mm-hmm. when it would normally go into like combat rounds. Right. Yeah. They were like, well, okay, so you uh, and your, um, your corporate positions, uh, the, your, your roles, fran- your franchise roles, you know, worked into that beautifully. Okay. You are the, you know, cartographer. So yeah. we need you to figure out the best way to get to, the next place we're going so do some downtime on that you are going to run for mayor because you have the highest charisma (laughs) and we're going to have someone else help you with your campaigning as part of this downtime whereas you're going to investigate the the uh orrery right the the relic and see what we can do with it or how to fix it and it was just so much fun and you can do it you don't have to spend a lot of time doing that you could do it with three roles and and then some quick narration or you could really spread it out if something caught people's fancy and oh when you go to the library to do this research you're attacked uh how are you going to handle it you know it's 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 good 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 stuff it really was neat, and it's such a springboard for open play because having this cemented in is all right. We finished this episode, which is often you know a dungeon or some sort of kind of more typical D and D experience, and then at the end of it to then reach this point that's very open would lead to all sorts of shenanigans. So you know, my middle school kids, one of them decided that their wizard was all about cheese, mm-hmm. so they would go to great lengths of you know I want to go find a cheese tasting event. And, you know, find the best cheeses. And so that would become a downtime activity that I would then improvise using the rules for downtime, right? And it's just yeah. so much fun would come from that. Yep. Our, ours wasn't cheese, it was shoes. We had a cobbler. Uh, <laughs> and so everything was about creating and selling shoes Yeah, uh, in and every then, town, yeah. And then you end up with players uh, that get to start to customize their franchise when you reach those mm-hmm. levels of play. And that leads to its own interesting things where people want to do things to improve upon their base. And uh, these kids that I was running for, again, middle school, wanted to base it on the Phineas and Ferb cartoon show. They decided to build essentially the Doofenshmirtz uh, (laughs) tower, Uh but on wheels. So it would roll around in their big giant skyscraper. And so that they, you know, spent time building it and tricking it out so they could follow them everywhere. Right. And they would drive this around. So, yeah, so was, and so really the takeaway here is what we tried to do was draw a straight line through the plot so a DM could feel comfortable on that journey, but then give so much freedom to move outside at mm-hmm. the player's and the DM's discretion Yeah, when they were comfortable doing so. And, and the, the end result being that it should feel as much of a campaign, you know, of your story, your campaign as any other approach, but with a powerful narrative that weaves throughout that comes from the, you know, the intended plot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the problems with sandbox, a purely sandbox thing is that they're, they're kind of, sometimes we feel like there's no story mm-hmm. because nothing gels together and there is no main line that takes us through narratively. It's all just wild and yeah. Yeah. Yep, and and it, that can be fine depending on your group, but it can quickly turn into sort of a big mess. Yeah. Um, so, well, with that out of the way, is there anything else you wanted to mention about the Acquisitions Incorporated? 
No, but you sure. know, I have been reading Witchlight, which is fantastic, and I'm excited. You know, we've got Baldur's Gate and we've got Icewind Dale, uh, yeah. but I'm also very excited to to talk about Witchlight after that because it is interesting to see how how Wizards has perhaps applied some of the learnings from these previous efforts as well. Yeah, yep. So uh, next time, I think we're going to be talking with Will and Stacy about mm-hmm. uh, the Wild Beyond the Witchlight, but. We will then get back to talk about Baldur's Gate, Descent into Avernus, and Icewind Dale, Ram of the Frostmaiden as the intros for each. So with that, I want to thank our listeners for putting up with our nonstop jabbering. <laughs> um, but we hope you enjoy said jabbering. And thank you to our patrons who keep the lights on here. If you would like to become a patron of the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash mmp teos you say things on the interwebs where can people see your say things Ooh, you can find me at alphastream.org where i am blogging and you can find me on twitter at alphastream how about you sean uh you can find me on twitter at sean merwin you can follow the podcast twitter at mastering dnd or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, we've just covered Waterdeep in great detail. What are we going to do now? Let's go run some downtime with all those NPCs we hired. Sounds like a plan. <laughs>